Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We don't drink coffee. Paul and I don't drink coffee. Yeah, not a, not a big coffee drinker. Um, but I know a lot of people do. And we got great coffee important. machines here at Bloomberg, though. You know how I like to wake up in the morning with a big inch V8. Let's talk about cars for a minute. Jeff Dyke joins us. He's a president of Sonic Automotive, and um, they had their uh, Q2 results out. All-time record quarterly revenue, $3.4 billion, up 58.7% year over year. If that doesn't rev your engine, I don't know what does. <laughs> Jeff, what's the, um, what's the biggest problem? Is it getting inventory in the door? Yeah, so from a new car perspective, that's the big issue. Um, we've got 84 stores across the country, and we've got about an eight- to nine-day supply wow. of new car inventory. Pre-COVID, we, that number would be in the 50- to 60-day range. So uh, certainly inventories are tight. That's pushed uh, inflation up on the new car prices. Um, and it's also affecting the used car business because, uh, you know, new car inventory drives used car inventory. And so you've seen this crazy inversion of used car prices being really, really high wholesale prices. At some point in time during the summer, we were paying more uh, for, a, for a car than we could, you know, it's, that we could sell a new car for. Uh, so uh, it's just created all kinds of crazy pricing. But that's going to alleviate um, uh, the chip shortages is, you know, I wouldn't say coming to an end, but certainly getting better. Um, and so between now and the year, inventory levels are going to come back on new uh, and pre-owned, uh, pre-owned inventories will come back. And so we're looking for a great uh, second half of the year. All right, Jeff. Hey, before we start, just uh, give Bruton and Bill Brooks my best regards. I worked with those guys when taking that Speedway Motorsports public way back in the day. So uh, some good I'll times be, with I'll, those guys. I'll be happy to do that, too. Fantastic guys. Yep. Jeff, talk to us. You know, so the automakers, it's, it's just amazing. You talked to me about that inventory. And, and I got a buddy who's, who, uh, who also is in the auto business, and he says the exact same thing. I mean, when are the OEMs telling you that you can get back to a more normalized level of inventory? Yeah, so I think it's going to happen in stages. I think the, the high-line luxury uh, vehicles come back uh, first. So uh, we have an eight-day supply of BMWs in our 15 BMW stores across the country today. Um, probably October, November time range, that's going to be 25 to 30. I don't expect inventories to ever come back to the level that they were pre-COVID, though, uh, because uh, it's a heck of a lot easier to manage smaller inventories. The manufacturers are not having to spend um, a ton of money on incentives any longer. Uh, so they're making more money. The business is just a lot more efficient. So what may have been a 60 to 70 day supply traditionally before COVID, I think will end up being a 45 to 50 day supply as we move forward but certainly not the lows that we're seeing here at the end of July and August in the 8- to 9- to 10-day range uh, across the country. That, that's going to get better progressively as we move towards the end of the year. So first, I have an observation which just dawned on me. Uh, the four bosses that I've spoken to since I've been in New York all drive BMWs. Yep, me too. And then I know, and then Paul does too, <laughs> Jeff, and, and Paul is – He's facing a conundrum here because he needs, he wants to get a new car, wants to stick with a Beamer because he likes to drive, and he wants a stick shift. What can he do? <laughs> <laughs> Call Jeff Dyke. <laughs> yeah, but but but, but manual transmissions are difficult to get these days, aren't they? 
they, they are, but we certainly can make that happen. And, and um, you know, there, there's that option for all of their model lines, um, in particular those 40 or, uh, of the luxury model lines. And so uh, that's easy to do. We, we can certainly make that happen. That and sounds I've like got a, a lot of friends. A good car smell salesman. Cars as well. you got to get an M3, M3 or an M4, I'd say. We, so, we can handle that very easily. <laughs> so, Jeff, it's interesting. I mean, for you at the dealer level, these are, you know, good times because you really – can drive hard bargains, right? I mean, it's definitely a seller's market, isn't it? A hundred percent. Everything is selling at MSRP. I, I don't care if that's a, a, a Toyota Camry or a Honda Accord, which never does that, uh, all the way up the line. Um, everything is selling at MSRP. People have to have cars. We don't have the discount. The manufacturers aren't discounting. So there's really no discounts out there to give. Um, and, and I think as we move forward, it lightens up a little bit. But again, um, I think we'll be selling closer to MSRP than as far away from MSRP as we were selling prior to COVID. It really kind of gotten away of the world. It's the first thing you learn in economics, right, is supply and demand. Yep. And um, they're going to control the supply a whole lot better than manufacturers are um, as we move forward, which is a, a huge blessing for everybody. Well, how long does, does the demand hold up? I mean, I know a lot of, you know, kids that said they were never going to get cars, city dwellers that maybe thought they didn't need them, and they all have gone out and bought automobiles. But you know, that can't last. Well, I don't think it can last, but short supply does create demand. Um, that's just the, how our country works, right? And so when anything, remember toilet paper last year, luxury cars are the toilet paper this year, right? <laughs> um, you couldn't you couldn't buy a roll of toilet paper last year to save your life, and you did. It was 15 bucks. Um, and, and that's what's going on in the car industry this year. I think it, I mean, it's certainly going to get better, um, uh, you know, as we move forward. But the government's got to quit paying everybody. Um, and to stay home. I mean, the, the labor market, you, you feel it in the labor market. We certainly do. The manufacturers certainly do. And I think as people get back to work, the demand you know, comes down a, a bit. But I don't see that happening this year and maybe not even to the first six months of next year. The, the demand is just so high. We've sold all the cars on our lot, everything in our pipeline, and have customers. Or they're still coming. And so uh, the business is just amazing uh, at this point in time. I've been in the business for 25 years and I have never seen it like this. Wow. Interesting. All right. Really interesting, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Jeff Dyke, he's president of Sonic Automotive, uh, symbol S-A-H. The stock is up uh, about three quarters of 1% today, up 39% for the year. Uh, and they posted some really strong results last night. And the business, as Jeff said, uh, stronger than ever. $194 billion with a B. Uh, that's some uh, serious coin. What would you do? Oh, it's just tax problems. Who, who, who needs that issue there? What a lot of folks are trying to do in the marketplace is, um, you know, think about do I plow back into those growth stocks, which have been such good stories over the last decade plus, or do I stick with my rotation trade, the reopening trade? Our next guest has an opinion there. Mike Lucas, principal and CEO of Truemark Investments. Mike, I seem to recall that you are certainly in that growth stock camp. Give us your thoughts. Definitely in the growth stock camp. I mean, Look, the reality is we've we've pigeonholed you know, a couple of different trends lately, right? The work from home trade and the the great rotation. I think both are dead, right? I mean, if we waited ten years for the great rotation of value that was purely model driven and, and kind of floated for a bit there, and, and now we're seeing it dissipate. The work from home trade. It's funny. Everyone punished some of the secular growth stocks when the the lockdown started to end, but reality is when you see earnings results come through those secular growth stocks that are part of the the you know broader digitalization of the global economy crushing it continue to yeah they're showing acceleration 
and Amazon's getting beat up, right? So maybe we're looking at the wrong trades for the work from home trade. So it's, you know, I think there's a there's a nice pocket of secular growth out there that's going to continue to accelerate. It's it was accelerating prior to the lockdown and the pandemic, accelerating through it, and now it's accelerating out of it. And sometimes it takes you know one, two, even three earning cycles to separate the you know the story stocks from the real secular growth stocks. But they're there and they're, they've got tailwinds. And, you know, regardless of what the macroeconomic environment is, these are industries and companies that aren't going away. But like, Mike, and, are you saying, you know, yeah. you don't believe in value rising up over growth or that we're just framing it the wrong way in terms of what these stocks, what these companies are? Well, I think we're framing it the wrong way. I mean, first and foremost, we're looking at it as a binary outcome. Uh, do I think value is going to rise up over growth? No, I don't. Long term, I don't. I think this whole thing is now geared towards growth. You know, if we look at the last 10 years, uh, quite frankly, most of the growth was concentrated in FANG. You know, if we take that out of the equation, really what happened there? Uh, but if you, if you look at a, a holistic view of this and understand that we've got right now, I mean, essentially two really strong wealth creators in this, in this country and, and globally, real estate and equities. So, you know, how long is that value trade going to last? I think you, you see great uh, opportunities in value and some dividend producers. You see tremendous opportunities in secular growth. It doesn't have to be binary. So, you know, when we talk about work from home, we talk about great rotation, we're falling into that trap. You know, we're falling into the idea that it has to be one or the other. And it's not. It's, it's never been that way. It's always been sort of what's going on in the gray area. And that will continue because as we can see, like the reopening, are we not reopening? Are the mask? I heard you guys earlier, mask mandates or recommendations. You know, it, the the nuances in the language are throwing people into a tailspin right now, and we don't know what's going to happen in the next week, the next month. I and mean, we saw inflation signals go off the chart. Now they're tame again. Volatility's down, and the market, the, you know, the equity market keeps grinding higher. And uh, so. You know, I wouldn't call it uncertainty, but I'd call it confusion right now. And, you know, I think the best thing to do is look for stocks that may be a part of the or beneficiaries of the new paradigm shift where there are secular growth stocks, particularly in tech, uh, that have become, we'll, we'll call them defensive, for lack of a better term, uh, when we've all been you know, running around staring at work from home and, and thinking about the great rotation. And it's time to shift our thinking a little bit. Mike, what do you think about inflation? That's certainly been a worry, a concern for market participants. How do you think about it with your uh, strategies? Well, you know, inflation's here. You know, anybody that's gone to the gas pump or or gone to the grocery store or, I guess, the last six weeks tried to uh, get lumber, you know, has realized that inflation's definitely here. Now, is it transitory? I guess that's that's the real question. Is the Fed handling it correctly? That's a whole other question. Um, So... In the end, for us, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll parrot Howard Marks here and say that it's quite possible the best inflation hedge out there is a, is a strong secular growth story. And even if we do see yields start to creep up, we're still in a historically low-yield environment, even if we get back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, if inflation's doubling that up, where do you go? Right. And so, uh, you know, I think the need for for growth in in the equity space is still going to persist. And I think inflation's here. It's just a matter of how long it's going to last and whether or not the Fed is tackling it correctly. Well, as long as it's less than growth. Right. I mean, substantially less. I heard the term growth for growthflation the other day and I thought it uh, made perfect sense. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to coin it. Um, the reality is that, again, it, it, if we can, if we can absorb inflation, uh, then, you know, it, people are going to ex- coexist with it, right? Uh, not that we have a choice anyway. Uh, but I think the ability to account for inflation with different asset classes is really going to dictate how this is digested, you know, in the, in the markets and in, particularly yeah. on Main Street. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Great to get your insight today. Mike Lu- Lucas is principal and CEO at Truemark Investments. ExxonMobil, Chevron, they reported earnings today. When I think about those big energy names, I think about, you know, big oil rigs in the, in the middle of West Texas and out in the North Sea. But folks are increasingly thinking about sustainable investing and, and just across the board, not just on these energy companies. Uh, let's dig into that a little bit. Kerry Dugan, advisor for Rock Creek, also a former deputy policy director to then Vice President Biden and White House climate energy advisor. Kerry, give us a sense for... It seems like these big energy companies, at least the U.S. ones, are making efforts at becoming more sustainable in their operations. Give us your view. Well, first, thanks for having me on, uh, Paul and Matt. It's, it's a real treat to be on with you today. Uh, I heard what you opened there with, and it's, uh, if, you, if you read a little bit closer, you guys are going to notice that in addition to the, their earnings, they're also reporting on their investment in the low-carbon solution space. And, and lately, I've heard a lot of talk, one of my favorite, perhaps it's because I'm from Michigan, a cold, cold weather state, you hear a lot of people talking about um, ice hockey. And I was listening to um, both Secretary Granholm, as well as Andrew Steer talking about skating to where the puck is going. So I, right. I think that, you know, we could absolutely observe that uh, with the oil and gas companies, they, they kind of see the future. They're tracking what's happening in Washington with this new bipartisan deal that they know what's coming. So I think it's a really exciting time on top of uh a really, uh, let's call it scary time. You've got record heat, and you also have record investments in this space. Um, in terms of, you know, the oil companies, can they ever be sustainable? Or it, it always strikes me as odd when, um, when you know, green investors go into big oil. But on the other hand, we have seen them now infiltrate in terms of activists on the board. That was another big uh, a big moment. Let's just call it that. But let me point you guys back to last week. I was out in Washington, um, my first pandemic trip, I might add, uh, <laughs> for a summit that we put together over at Rock Creek with Afsani Beshloss and about 20 global leaders in this space. And, um, it, you know, maybe if you take nothing away from that uh, series of really important interviews, um, Afsani sat down with Britt Harris, who is president CEO of the University of Texas, Texas A&M University Investment Management Company. And he was talking about how the, the you know previous era was a hydrocarbon era, and this era that we're in now is moving away from hydrocarbons into more renewable, sustainable sources. I don't know about you, but that message coming out of uh, you know a huge uh, and, and importantly placed uh, investment management company was a big signal to me, and I think that's really um, that's that was a huge takeaway. And you know, there's all sorts of interesting other nuggets that came out of the summit. I mean, we had. Uh, Gina McCarthy, who is in a really important role right now, talking about following these investments that you're talking about uh, and, and you know, the, the role of government in buying down the risk um, and the down payment that this uh, new bipartisan plan is going to be uh, really means that the, the invest com- investment community and your audience has a big, huge role to play going forward. How about the role of government? Uh, I'm thinking about President Biden's infrastructure bill 
climate commitment. Give us your thoughts as to where this administration is going. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you mentioned in your lovely introduction that I've, I've had some history here. Um, and so I, I do know that um, because I worked very closely with the, the president when he was vice president, you know, these, these issues around jobs and equity um, and climate are near and dear to his heart. And I think you see that reflected in um, both the person and in, in the, the policy. Um, back, back then, we were working on the Recovery Act, and we called that a down payment on a clean energy future. And now we're working on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, there's just been a huge shift in the landscape. Uh, that's sort of thing one. Thing two is definitely what's going on in real time, the real impacts that we're all seeing with our own eyes um, from Germany to China. I'm here in Detroit, guys. I mean, we are experiencing this in real time. So uh, I think the policy has met the moment. Um, and the investment community, you know, there's there's trends now. There's more money in this space. You're seeing new and big, huge funds in this space and climate which is exciting, but, uh, you know, these investments aren't limited to climate in terms of what needs to happen. There's other issues, of course, that uh, I view as quality of life issues, and so does the president, um, when you think about uh, food scarcity and, and other, you know, mitigation issues, well, air quality issues. Anyway. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited by what's going on in Washington, and, but I also know that it's, it's just it's another down payment, and there's a real role for the investment community to come in. Yeah, and... The investment community is where I want to go. Now you're advising Rock Creek, and people want to make returns on investments. It's not just about altruism. Um, are they are investors willing to accept lower returns if they can do good? Um, I'm not going to even go down that road. I'm going to talk to you about what I know from working as an advisor to Rock Creek. Afsane, you know, she came. You know, she's probably been on your show, and, and you'll have her back. Uh, you know, this is former treasurer of the World Bank. So she's been doing, in my view, ESG and DEI, sorry to use acronyms, but I know your audience knows them well, uh, investing before it was in fashion, and now it's very much in fashion. And she's been doing it with returns for clients, including major foundations and pension funds. So there's, there is proof there. And I think um, what's, what's more telling right now is, you know, the appetite for the data to support that. I know that you all have talked about this on the show it's something we're, um, without playing all my cards today, Paul and Matt, I'll just tell you that we're going to come back and talk again about the data that um, Rock Creek is um, has at its fingertips and, and ways that we can um, make that more readily available so that uh, investors can actually see these returns. So uh, I think that um, premise that you mentioned in your question is, is past tense. I think the investments are here and now. So, Sarah, give us a sense here. I mean, ESG investing, I first heard about it maybe – 15 years ago from European institutional investors, uh, but now more and more here in the U.S. Uh, where are we in terms of really embracing it, would you say? Well, I think there's there's interest in creative and new um, opportunities. We had on the, on the summit last week, we had the, the founder of Appeal, A-P-E-E-L, which is a, a company that uh, uses uh, you know, what I'll just call generally new technology to make, uh, you know, your fruits and vegetables last longer. And that's really important, as I mentioned, in terms of like food scarcity. But the, the, what's interesting to me about that as an investment is they consider nature as the end user, not sort of a human as the end user. And so in, in my world, you know, I come out of sort of energy environment, science and tech, you know, we call that life cycle analysis. And I think, I think that's an interesting trend. I think that's one that there's a real appetite, particularly along uh, millennials and millennial uh, age investors are looking for uh, that type of information and, and uh, you know, these closed loops. I think 
um, watching uh, Andrew Sears TED talk the other day, and I, I thought it was so interesting. He talked about going from a take make waste economy mm. to a circular economy, and I think that that is the trend that investors investors need to be watching for right now as, as the more circular opportunity. Carrie, thanks so much, Carrie Dugan. There, she's an advisor to Rock Creek, former deputy policy director for then Vice President uh, Biden. This is Bloomberg. Amazon notwithstanding, we're getting some really, really good earnings uh, this quarter, um, and that's alleviating concerns from some investors who are worried about market valuations. Let's check in with one of those uh, market participants, Phil Orlando, chief equity market strategist and head of the client portfolio management at Federated Hermes. Uh, These guys are big. I mean, it's like $600 billion assets under management worldwide. Uh, so they have more than their toe dipped into this investment pool. Phil, thanks so much for, for joining us here. Give us your 30,000 foot view of this earnings cycle and, and maybe more importantly, the outlook we're getting from some of, some in corporate America. Well, in, in a word, the earnings season's been terrific. You know, we're roughly two thirds of the way through. Uh, S&P 500 earnings are double uh, what they were a year ago. Uh, the uh, uh, revenues are, are very strong. Earnings are very strong. I think the, the, the most important story are the splits, that the growth companies, the technology names, are, are doing fine. Earnings are up 50 to 60% year on year. But the really outsized gains are coming from the economically sensitive categories, like financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, energy. Th- those numbers are cartoon-like. They're up you know, 200%, 300%, 400% year on year. Um, because remember, those companies, you know, we basically had shut down and left for dead a year ago, second quarter. Uh, so the numbers, you know, are strong as we've come back to life. We now know that the recession ended in April of last year, based upon the National Bureau of Economic Research making that announcement last week. So we're, we're getting terrific news out of earnings. And the guidance, I think, has been constructive. Uh, companies are saying they've got better visibility. Um, obviously, there's some uncertainty in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, and right. where are we at this Delta variant? But but I, I think we're in a lot better shape today than we were a year ago at this time. Do you think those two things? I mean, uh, David Costin was on a couple weeks ago from Goldman Sachs and said his worries are about rates and about tax policy, but uh, the Delta variant hadn't reared its ugly head, uh, you know, to this extent at that point. Are those the biggest headwinds? I, I think absolutely. Um, you know, David's a smart guy. He was spot on with his concerns about fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, a month later, uh, the Delta variant, um, you know, is now accounting for something like 80 or 85 percent of all new infections. Uh, if you're vaccinated, you're, you're in pretty good shape. But the reality is that there are parts of the country, mostly in the southeast, uh, where the vaccination rates are not where they should be. You know, we're probably 70% or so here in the New York area. We're probably half that down in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, et cetera. So I think we've got to do a better job of getting those folks vaccinated and up to speed uh, because, the, the, you know, what the doctors are telling us is that they, you're vaccinated, you're, you're not going to die from the Delta variant. And, and that's the objective that we're trying to achieve, try to stay alive here. 
All right, Phil, we've, we've got this Delta variant. It's kind of maybe causing some folks to rethink the reopening trade uh, as opposed to maybe focusing on some of those core growth stories, some of the tech names. Where are you guys uh, focusing on right now in terms of sectors? So um, there's absolutely been a resurgence in, in the growth in the technology names since, let's say, Memorial Day. So over the course of the last couple of months, uh, growth in tech has done better. Um, but because we are producing these these outsized earnings gains in uh, in the cyclicals, uh, and and those stocks have underperformed the the growth in tech names over the last couple of months, that's where we're placing our bet. Um, we believe that we will get through this Delta variant, uh, and and the reopening trade is is uh, as we get into the fall, the last you know three months of the year or so, uh, we're we're going to get that rotation back into value. Uh, so what we'd be doing is taking a look at at uh, those companies that are that are doing great, that are getting good guidance, the earnings and revenue numbers are strong. Perhaps they've underperformed uh, from a relative valuation standpoint. That's where we think is the outsized opportunity is going to be. To end the year. Are you concerned at all that we may have a, uh, that we may hit a fiscal cliff? Um, you know, if we don't pass uh, the bigger part of the legislation that the Democrats want to cram through, are we going to you know fall off in terms of spending? Uh, I'm very concerned about the fiscal cliff. If you've been reading uh, any of my weekly market commentaries over the last I don't know three or four weeks, uh, that. Uh, the the the, uh, the the debt ceiling uh, expires tomorrow. Um, I, I believe uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen has enough money to uh, in the couch cushions to to keep things solvent until about October and November. Uh, but we're going to have to address that issue, and I suspect it's going to be an issue that that Congress will work into either this $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan or this, you know, three, four, five trillion dollar uh, uh, social spending plan that, that uh, seems to be more uh, along party lines. But somewhere within one or both of those packages, we're going to have to address the, the deficit ceiling and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and lift it. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Phil Orlando there, Chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio management over at Federated Hermes. They've got $80 billion in equity. He's got firm-wide $615 billion of assets under management. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.